0: In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. Welcome to Dan's Talks. My guest today is Marvin Scott, a, uh, an award-winning uh, newscaster, anchor, producer, journalist. He's won 11 Emmys and a few in New York City. I'm sure you have heard him going back many years and also as recently as... Uh, Last week, when he was covering a fire with a man trapped in Brooklyn, I just listened to and watched it and WPIX channel 11. And uh, welcome to the show. And, and uh, I think you're most well known in the uh, journalistic community for the work you did. uh, in covering uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and combat working with the troops and entertainment. Am I correct about that?
1: Well, Dan, first, uh, let me say it's good to see you again. It's been a while, but it's good to be out here. I've been out in East Quag for the last 10 days with my wife. Uh, we vacation out here every year, the first week in July. And uh, we, we belied the uh, the weather forecast. They predicted thunderstorms for three consecutive days, and we had sun. So it was wonderful, very relaxing, and it's good to see you again. So to answer your question, yes, I would say, in my more than 50-year career, my proudest achievement uh, would be my uh, five visits to Iraq and Afghanistan at Christmas time. We went over there to bring them a taste of New York in the form of bagels, hot dogs, and cheesecake. Oh. And it was flown over by DHL Express right to the base and also basically to let the New York units know that they weren't forgotten back home. And I have to tell you, it was so wonderful when a soldier, a male soldier, would put his hand into mine and say, "Thank you. You made a difference for my Christmas or I got a hug from a female soldier oh. that that beat any of the trophies, any of the awards i've I've ever received because it was so rewarding to me to be able to do that. But best part of it was the days before Zoom and Skype, we put them on live via satellite to talk to their families back home. Oh. There was nothing more emotional than hearing some of those, those reactions and actions of the soldiers and their families back in New York.
0: Oh, how, how long would you be on one of those junkets? Uh, a week, two weeks?
1: About a week. And it, it, it took so much work. And we dealt with uh, some generals in Washington. And when we would get to, uh, Baghdad International Airport and surrounded by barbed wire and fences. My cameraman, Dave Kimmel, and I got off a a flight once, and all the soldiers on that flight got into a bus, and he and I were the only ones left around the barbed wire in this fenced-in area, no one there to meet us. And, oh, my goodness, we're here at the airport. Thank God I had a satellite phone. Reached someone from the Department of Defense. Oh, we forgot you were coming. (laughs) Send a helicopter over for you. We finally got out of there, but it was uh, it was an eye opening experience and a, and a heartwarming experience for for me to be with these these people who were so far from home.
0: You've, you've written a, a, a memoir about a lot of this uh, called "As I Saw It," and I wondered if you could tell us the highlights from the the, uh, the memoir.
1: How many hours do you have? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, 10 minutes, how's that sound?
1: <laughs> I've got ten so minutes. many stories. Oh, oh what, what is my, my, my favorite story uh, would be about Charlie. Charlie, who was this guy, 54-year-old man, he got fired from a, a Wall Street firm where he was a clerk. He got replaced by a computer. Uh, he lived in a ramshackle house, and it was for being foreclosed. His mother had just passed away. He had only $1,200 to his name in the bank, and he received a bank statement. It showed he had $100,000, 100000 plus his 1200 <laughs> He figured he made a mistake. So these are the days before the ATMs. So he went to the bank, checked with the teller, and said, yes, this is your correct balance, $100,000 and uh, 1200 He fantasized. Those days, there was the television show. Remember the millionaire? Yep. He would hand out a million dollars each week, a different program. So he fantasized maybe someone was giving him a million dollars. But in his mind or in his heart, he knew that it was a mistake. He Uh held it for about two months, slowly withdrawing money. He withdrew his $1,200 and slowly started taking some of the $100,000. Eventually, and this is after he had gone back to the teller a number of times, and he would take the money out. Then he would go to the city. He would go to Barclays and convert them into traveler's check because he knew those were easy to cash. And he figured at some point he'd go to Las Vegas where he can cash them easily. So he took out all but $89.35. Oh. It was to ask him when he returned, Charlie, why did you leave the 89 80- I didn't want to close the account.
0: <laughs> <Okay>.
1: <laughs> he took the money. He said it was like, hanging a steak in front of a hungry dog, <laughs> totally destitute, no job, no family, no home. So he decided to take off with it. He was an introvert who returned when he was captured three months later. He came back as an extrovert and he was a town hero, a folk hero. The people cheered him when he came out for the plane under arrest. And the uh, newspapers wrote editorials for the bank to drop the charges. On the lamb. he lived as frugally as he had his life. He spent all about maybe $10,000, $15,000, and he lived in motels, inexpensive motels, until he got to Portland. In Portland, he decided to live it up and check into a hotel, and he didn't want to pay the fee to park in the garage, so he parked on the street. That was his fatal error. He parked (laughs) on the street at a time where the police had new onboard computers in their cars, and they were still testing them. So every time they saw an out of pla- out of town state plate, bingo, there was Charlie's plate. He got arrested, brought back home, extradited, and came back as a town hero. Wound up on welfare, and they wanted to make him the grand marshal of the St. Patrick's Day parade. <laughs> That's my favorite story in the book, Charlie.
0: What became, what became of him after that? Do you ever follow he had him?
1: had a job working in a bowling alley. Went on welfare, and sadly, eventually, he. Contracted cancer and he passed away. Uh, I met with him in the hospital. I always thought it would make a great movie. And (laughs) I've been trying for 40 some odd years to convince producers to do a movie on this guy. The greatest expense was in Las Vegas, where he hired two prostitutes, paid him $300, hadn't had sex in such a long time. He really didn't know. He was so self-conscious of it. Uh, he let them go. Charlie, did you gamble? Hell no! I saw him shoving that money in those holes. No, but he went to the five cent slot machine. He converted the five cents into thirty dollars in change. He felt the greatest sense of accomplishment in getting away with the bank's money. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, that that was my favorite. There are so many stories. there. the crazy love, the couple that get married. Uh, Bert Pugash and Linda Riss bag story back in. I guess the late 60s, he was having an affair with her. She discovered he was married. She dumped him. And six months later, she was engaged to some other guy. She got engaged and Bert got enraged. And he said if he couldn't have her, no one was going to have her. So he decided he was going to kill her. He stalked her apartment in Riverdale with a 38 caliber revolver for three nights, thinking, oh. hmm, I'm not going to get caught, but if I do, the electric chair was still being used at Sing Sing. So he opted, not going to do that. He hired two thugs to bring her an engagement present, which was lie. As soon as she opened the door, they threw lie in her face and left her legally blind and disfigured. He eventually was caught, spent 14 years at Attica. When he got out of Attica, I did an interview with him. It was uh, on a park bench in Forest Hills. And during the course of the interview, he was part of his parole agreement was he made no contact with Linda Riss. Um, he turned to the camera and he said, Linda, if you're listening, I love you, Linda. Will you marry me? (laughs) Man, what a great lead for the 10 o'clock news. (laughs) Six months later, believe it or not, they were married. They were married for 39 years. They both passed the recent years. But that was, that was a hell of a story. And uh, Dan Clories did a documentary, which was on HBO, called Crazy Love. I think it's still there in demand. But what a story. Unbelievable story. There are so many like that. You bring up, as I saw it, uh, people are encouraging me to write another book. Uh, there how, are did so
0: gonna, how did you out. get into this uh, in the first place? How did you get into broadcast in the first place?
1: It goes back to my days as a as a teenager in the Bronx, where I grew up. And you can say it was a fire that ignited my career, Dan. Um, doing homework one night, I hear fire engines. I go to the window, and night turned to day from the flames just around the corner from me. I dashed out with my camera. I was a, a photobug. I dashed out, grabbed a picture of flames bursting from about 12 windows of this catering hall. And then the Daily News, New York's picture newspaper. The way we do in television we encourage them to bring video they encourage us to call when we have pictures so I called them and I say yeah kid bring it down so I down, went down to 220 East 42nd Street there was the newsroom the excitement the whole thing there I was I gave him my negatives and the next day I'm sitting waiting for the bulldog edition of the newsstand and there was my picture a quarter of a page in the centerfold Gosh, this was exciting, but also the excitement of being there and being in a newsroom. That was the bug that bit me. <laughs> but even better than that, after the fire, I went back to my building on the corner of Mount Dean and Townsend Avenue in the Bronx, and they were all my neighbors. Oh, Marvin, what happened? I was like 14 or 15 at the time. What happened? So I was there, I told him everything I knew. So you could say that was my very first newscast at the stage.
0: So what was your first job after uh, your education?
1: Uh, in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, after I graduated from NYU where I majored in communications, I was supposed to go, my parents were sending me to Europe for the summer, but I felt it was more important to get my first job. So I took this job in Charleston where I was the second news person in the Capitol Bureau in Charleston. Uh, The main studio was in Huntington. And got my feet wet there. I did everything. Shot the film, remember film? Oh my goodness. Not only did I shoot it, I would set up a camera. I remember Governor Cecil Underwood. I had to do an interview one day. And I put the film in the camera. It gave me three minutes. And I would set it up ready, Gov? Get ready. Set the camera, set it roll. Went up, sat in front, did the interview for three minutes, and I went back to the studio. I had to process it in the developer, the stop, the hypo, then put it on a dowel stick drying board with a fan. Archaic by today's standards, but that's where I got my feet wet in Charleston, West Virginia. Then I came back to New York, and uh, the rest is history. You can say Channel Five for ten years. I've been now. This is my forty-third year at WPIX.
0: What is what is the most memorable story you've ever
1: covered? In, uh, in- memorable, would also be the most tragic, of course, 9-11. Yeah. And I had covered so many stories of terrorism, but this was like none other, because it wasn't some far-off country. This was our own backyard. These were our neighbors. These were our viewers who were being murdered. And that is will remain the most tragic and most memorable but there were so many memorable stories, uh, that would top it. Uh, my, my trips to Iraq and Afghanistan stand out going back. The interviews, Dan, probably the most iconic interview with Martin Luther King. Remember him? I actually got to sit with him and to talk to him. It was during a March, a uh, March against fear. And, uh, he picked up that March, uh, after, um, the name slips me. It was a in, in Memphis, Tennessee. And they it was during a break in the march. We were sitting on the side of the road, and I had gone to file a story. I was with a mutual radio network at the time. I had gone across the street to a motel to file a story. And I came back. I picked up, it was a hot day, and I picked up two Cokes from the vending machine, went back, and there was uh King sitting on the side of the road during this break, and I had already met him. So I said, Dr. King, may I join you for a moment? He said, Yes. We sat down, I offered him my Coke. I offered him, I had another Coke in my pocket. I said, <laughs> Coke, handed him the Coke. And we chatted for about 10 minutes. And the thing that stood out, we, we talked, he echoed what he had said in that speech in Washington, that, you know, don't judge a person by the color of their skin, but their, their, their character. And I asked him, why with all the threats on your life, you're a family man, why do you do this? And I never forgot, it was a pregnant pause. He looked me in the eye and he said, for the children, for the children. And that was so poignant and so true. And it's the children who were benefited by all of his efforts all those years. It was incredible. So that was the most iconic interview. The most difficult interview was a Holocaust denier. I had him on the program. And I set it up and I said, in of School, they teach us there are two sides to every story. And the late Edward R. Murrow once said, sometimes there's a third side to the story. And, of course, the Holocaust that, oh, no, there were two sides. Yeah. And and what happened with this Holocaust denier, he said there were three sides to the story. And I asked him what his story was. And he talked about people in the camps because there was the outbreak of typhus. You've heard the stories. And... I said, what about Auschwitz? Wasn't it a death campus? Yes, it was, because people died of typhus. And I just couldn't get out of the interview fast enough because I had a Holocaust survivor in another segment. They weren't sitting there together. Uh, That was probably the most difficult one to do. But I was straightforward. I felt to be objective as a journalist, it was important to hear this man's views. And I asked him about the uh, the commandant of the, uh, one of the death camps. He, he admitted there was, he said yes, because he was tortured. Uh, he had an answer forever. One of the more interesting interviews I've done, which is really historic. And this being the 60th year of the Kennedy, uh, anniversary of the Kennedy, J.M. John F. Kennedy assassination, Abraham Zapruder, a dress manufacturer in Dallas who shot the film of the actual assassination. On the third anniversary of the assassination, I reached out to him in Dallas for an interview. He was a very shy man. According to the Sixth Floor Museum, my interview was only one of five he ever did. I coerced him to come out and stand in the very spot where he was, where he took that film. And he described what he saw. 22 minutes in the interview, he told me he heard two distinctive shots from his left and behind. He and his assistant, Marilyn Sitzman, who was 30 years his junior, both told me they heard the shots from their left ear, would have been the book depository. If there were shots from there, they distinctly would have heard a louder shot. He said he only heard two shots, didn't doubt that there were three. He said he was traumatized after he heard that second shot and traumatized when he saw the damage done by that bullet. And he said he didn't know how he stood there as long as he did and and held the camera as steady as he did. Well, in that interview, he described seeing the motorcade. And I felt, after I saw the film, that if I can sync that portion of the interview with the film, it would have Abraham Zapruder narrating it. It took me 40 years to get my hands on the film and the rights to do this. The Sixth Floor Museum allowed me to use the film. I took 33 seconds of the audio portion Put it into 26 seconds of that video and abraham zapruder is actually narrating that portion of that of the of the video so it's historic i've I've been i'll be at the museum in dallas in the next month and encouraging them to to release that again to license that film so that was an incredible moment
0: i see thank you for being on the my podcast i appreciate it it's good to see you good i see you having a good time there in Quag. and I'm in East Hampton and uh, I guess I'll see you uh, on your new show.
1: I'll see you. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Good to Bye. be with you.